0: privilege that we have of, of being called your sons. Lord, what we could expect or, or or maybe hope in our wildest dreams is that we might be your servants or subjects. But you said, I no longer call you slaves, but sons and friends. And so, Lord, we just come to you this morning as that, as your sons. And Lord, we just profess our faith in you. Lord, we thank you that um, that the word tells us that those whom you love, you love to the end. And you told us, Lord, that the work that you've begun in our hearts and in our lives, that you're going to be faithful to carry it out all the way to completion. That you said you'd never leave us or forsake us, but that uh, you, you would be with us always, even to the end of the age. And so, Father, we present ourselves to you this morning, Lord. We want to be those living sacrifices consecrated and sanctified for you. We want you to have every part of our hearts, Lord, every area of our lives. We ask that you'd be the Lord of our thoughts, the Lord of our motives, our desires, our drives. We pray that you'd be the Lord of our actions, the way we conduct ourselves with our families, our children, in our workplaces, the way we are in public and in private. Lord, that there would be no area of our heart that you would not have complete control of. And so, Lord, we we just ask you to fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. You said that without you, we could do nothing. And you said, Lord, that we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You commanded it. And so, Lord, if you command it, we know that you'll supply that which you tell us we need. And so we pray, Father, that you fill us this morning with your Spirit. Fill us with your love, your life. Fill us with your hope. And we pray, Father, that you'd fill us with your word, that as we take this time to search the scriptures, especially these things that concern uh, such an exciting topic, Lord, your, your return, your coming. We pray, Lord, that you'd give us understanding, that you would help us, Lord, to uh, perceive, that you'd give us insight. And we pray that you'd help us to apply it, Lord, that it wouldn't just be information that we gather but it would affect the way we live. And so, Father, we just thank you so much. We pray for every need that's represented here. Lord, I know that for every soul that sits in these seats, there's need that's greater than what, what, what we can handle ourselves. And so we pray, Lord, that whatever those needs are, whether they're in our family or for our provisions or in our health, in our bodies, in our mind, or if we need some victory in some area of our life, Lord, whatever it is, I pray right now in Jesus' name that you would supply the power, Lord, to meet those needs. And we ask that you, Lord, who does above and beyond what we could ask or think, that you would work through us and in us by the power of your Spirit. And Lord, we, we finish this prayer where we probably should have begun. Lord, we pray that you'd wash us in the blood of Jesus Christ, that we'd be completely cleansed, that the cross would avail for everything, Lord. And we just thank you, Father, for the gift of eternal life. We thank you for the joy of the Lord. We thank you for the peace that passes understanding. We thank you for all the instruction that you give us. Thank you that you make straight paths for our feet. And we pray, Lord, that each one of us would finish well, that our walk with you would bring you glory. We ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Um, Before we break in, did you already start it? You did, didn't you? It's rolling? It's rolling. Okay. Let's get in the (laughs) Word. Let's open in our Bibles to um, Daniel chapter 9 and Luke chapter 19. Daniel chapter 9 and Luke 19. Last week we began a study, here comes a big word, on eschatology, which is a big theological word that means the doctrine of last things. It's a study of what the Bible teaches about God's prophetic outline for world history and how it's all going to play out. How is God going to orchestrate the events of world history, especially as it concerns the second coming of Jesus Christ and the end of days. And so it's the doctrine of last things. And in case you missed last week, you can get a recording of it. We covered the benefits of having this understanding. That is, we answered the question of why did God put this in the scriptures for us to study? And what advantage is it to us to know it? Why, why does God want us to know the things that are coming upon the earth? And is it important? So we answered that question. And then we covered the cast of characters. We looked at all of the players... Um, that, that uh, have a part in this thing. Um, it, you know, and, and here's the premise of, of what we're doing right here and of last week's study, really. And that is that God has known from the beginning what will happen and he knows how it's going to happen. It isn't abstract. It isn't a Petri dish setting where he set things in motion and now he's just watching to see how it will work. But he knows exactly what's going to happen, and he has known it from the beginning. uh, Before he ever spoke the words, let there be light, he already knew how the whole program was going to play out. And it will play out according to his plan. And so there are certain players involved in it, and we looked at those. Uh, The stage, of course, is planet Earth. God, the first player, is the divine director. He's the one, it's his plan, it's his work, it will be done. Number two is Israel, who plays a key role throughout. From beginning to end of God's plan, Israel plays a role. Player number three is the son, Jesus, the hero of the story, who is the savior, the one who came, and the one who will come. Number four was the church, who is the bride of the son. A small role, really, in the grand scheme, but very significant, very important, especially to us. Number five is the villain. You can't have a story without a villain. And so we we talked about that a little bit, the devil, and the role that he plays in all that God has done. He certainly plays a role. And then the spawn of the villain, which is number six, and finally, uh, the Antichrist, the coming world ruler who will rule over the entire planet, a global system, for the last seven years, that's the whole length of his reign, seven years uh, of man's history at the very end. So those are the players uh, in this plan that God has laid out, uh, and, and that's by way of review to bring you up to speed in terms of what we talked about last week. Now this week, I want to talk about the, more or less the timeline or, or the flow of the events that will take place, and, and not just at the end, but from beginning to the end. All of world history basically breaks down from God's perspective. I mean, from man's perspective, you could break it down however you want. But from God's perspective, all of world history is separated into four basic time spans. The first of those is Israel. We'll call it Israel. You could call it something else if you wanted to, but it basically deals with the existence and the course that Israel has taken. So that's the first of four. Time periods. Number two would be the church or the church age. and That is where we are at presently. We are in the church age. I believe we're at the tail end of the church age. Uh, and I say I believe because I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. Number three, the third segment, time segment, is called the tribulation. And that, of course, is that final seven years that I already mentioned uh, you know, that that the the one world ruler will, will preside over. That's the third distinct time segment. And then number four, the last, is what's called the millennium. So the time of Israel, the first, goes from the call of Abraham until April 6th, 32 AD. That's when that time span took place historically, that first one. The church age started shortly after that on the day of Pentecost, same year, 32 A.D. And the church age will go for an unknown period of time, but it will end with the rapture of the church. When the church is taken out of the world, the church age will be completed. That time period is over. The third period that we spoke of, the tribulation, begins with the signing of a covenant. That we'll get into. We'll talk about it hopefully today. The signing of a covenant that will usher in a time of false world peace. It will be the signature achievement of that man who is the Antichrist. It will be what reveals who he is. And it will start the time span of his reign. Seven years. The final seven years. And the millennium is a 1,000 a 1, year period of time that begins... 45 days after the second coming of Jesus Christ and it spans for a thousand years. And then there'll be a new heavens and a new earth and this world will be dissolved as we know it. And so four basic time spans make up the whole of world history from according to God's plan and what it is that he is desiring to accomplish. Israel, the church, the tribulation, and then the millennium. Um, and so now we'll go through these, and it, we, we won't get past Israel today, and we'll just barely touch the church. Um, but, but as we continue in this study, we'll, we'll go through these and, and see what's going to happen. We'll fill in the details, and that will, for you, develop the picture of how it's all going to go down. And the exciting part is we get to see it all in Scripture. So, so it's right there at our, our fingertips. And so we, we look at the time span of Israel. Now, again, last week we looked at Israel not as a time span, but as a character, as a a person. Remember the woman who was clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, the crown of twelve stars pictured there in Revelation chapter 12? That was Israel the character. This is Israel the time span. Israel as a time span began with the call of Abraham. Abraham, of course, gave birth to Isaac, Isaac then to Jacob. Jacob to 12 sons that became the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel, you know, and and so those fathers, each over a tribe, and they ended up, if you know the story, in Egypt. Joseph was sold as a slave there. God sent a famine. Joseph was raised, elevated to a place of prominence. He became the prime minister of Egypt, and Jacob and the other 11 sons were then brought into Egypt for the sake of preservation because of the famine. They stayed there for about 400 years. They multiplied. They went from a group of 70 to a multitude of around 3 million. Whether that was 3 million men or 3 million total, we don't know for sure. But we know that 400 years after they came to Egypt, they numbered in the millions. They became slaves there, (coughs) oppressed by the Pharaoh, at which time God raised up Moses. Moses, the deliverer, brought them out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. God poured out wrath upon Egypt. He drowned Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea and he delivered his people. He saved them from that place in Egypt. From there, they went to Mount Sinai where they received the law. It was the covenant, the main covenant that governed the existence of Israel. They received the law on Mount Sinai. They then wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, following Moses, waiting to go into the land that God promised to give them nationally, the land of Canaan, which became Israel. It's Israel today. After 40 years, Moses dies. Joshua picks up the baton of leadership, takes them across the Jordan River, and they now go into the promised land. They unseat the Canaanite kings that ruled there at the direction and call of God, and God gave them that land. Joshua divided it amongst the 12 tribes, each of them received a lot in that land, and they began to exist as a national entity having their own homeland. For the next 300 to 400 years, it was called the period of the Judges. There was no centralized head, there was decentralized tribalism that governed the way that they existed in the the land for those first 300 years. It was a time of chaos, it was a time of apostasy, it was a time of extreme spiritual highs and extreme spiritual lows for that 300 years. Uh, where there was about 14 judges and you know, seven stages of apostasy and revival as they tried to figure out who they were and how to govern themselves. They really couldn't govern themselves. After the period of the judges, the people asked for a king. and God raised them up, Saul, and then David, who became really... God's standard for what a king was supposed to be. David uh, being the first good king of Israel through which Israel was really established and for the first time in their existence, stable in their relationship with God. Now, from Saul and David, the period of the kings spanned for about 450 years. And during the period of the kings, it was a slow and steady moral decline that headed towards apostasy. They didn't go up and down like they did during the Judges, but it was just a a slow slide away from the Lord for 450 years. Now, God warned the nation through Moses that if they turned away from him, if they forsook his ways, if they became apostate, that they would lose the privilege to the land that he had given them, that they would be carried away as captives. Moses spoke that specifically to them before they even went in. He told them, Well, after 450 years of kings and slow apostasy, the time finally came that God fulfilled his word. And the Babylonians came into Israel and into Jerusalem, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, destroyed it, And killed, you know, a good number, a multitude of the Jews that were there. And carried the rest of them out of the land and brought them as slaves to Babylon. And that began a period that was known as the captivity. They were captives to their enemies and they were stripped of their possession of the land. They were moved out. And so they were brought then to Babylon. And for 70 years they were in captivity in Babylon as a nation. It was God's fulfillment of what he said would happen if they turned away, but God wasn't done with them. So after 70 years, they came back into the land. They were allowed to to go. God supernaturally intervened and brought them back into their land. They rebuilt the city of Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. They rediscovered the word of God and there was a great revival in Israel under Ezra, Nehemiah, Joshua the high priest, Zerubbabel, And and the people served the Lord again for a while. And then we go into a period that's called the silent years. Malachi, or if you want to call him Malachi, the Italian prophet. (laughs) The last of the Old Testament prophets was about 450 BC. And, And after him, there was a period of silence. There was history There was God's involvement, but there was no revelation. There was no prophet that came on the scene. For 450 years, God was essentially silent as the nation again went into a slide of apostasy, turning away from the Lord. And it culminated with the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And all of that time encompasses the history of Israel in a nutshell. Now... When they went into captivity, and the reason I share all of this with you and give you that kind of a background, when they went into captivity, about 586 BC, there around, and they were brought out of their land, when they got to Babylon, they kept their national identity. They didn't become Babylonians. They didn't assimilate with the Chaldean people. But they remained Israelites and God continued dealing with them even though they were in Babylon. Two of the prophets that we have recorded in scripture, Daniel and Ezekiel, were both in captivity during the time of their prophecy. Daniel prophesied from Babylon. That's where he was when his word, same with Ezekiel. They were not in Israel, so God was still dealing with Israel during that time. And the reason I say that to you is because Daniel, the probably the most unique of all the prophets, uh, at least in a certain way, um, Daniel gave us a prophecy while he was in Babylon in captivity that gives to us today the framework for all of God's prophetic dealings for all of world history. His prophecy is broader in spectrum than any other of the prophets. They prophesied to address a specific issue or a specific season. But Daniel almost has an eagle-eye view of God's entire spectrum plan. And he gives that to us uh, in in his book. And so the prophecy that we have in Daniel, and specifically in chapter 9, where I've asked you to turn, it's called the backbone of Bible prophecy. And the reason is this, is that it gives to us the time frame of all of the events that are going to happen throughout all of God's uh, dealings with the planet. It's basically a blank timeline that has a few details filled in along the way that allows us then to plug things in. So it's like, You know, we have this long line, and as we discover things in the scripture, we attach them to the framework that Daniel gave to us, and that allows us to have a clear picture of all that God is going to do uh, upon the earth. And so, if you're in Daniel chapter 9, we're going to pick up in verse 20, but let me give you... Uh, the backdrop of what's going on here uh, so that you understand the context and why this is uh, given to Daniel and, and how it relates to us. Daniel and the Israelites have been in captivity at this point in Daniel 9 for 68 years. Now this is just to see if you've been paying attention. How many years were they in captivity total? Good. 70 years. And they've been in captivity at this point, 68 of those years. And Daniel, being a man of God, was reading the scroll of Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah predated Daniel by just Daniel, or Jeremiah was one of the last prophets before they went into captivity. And so Daniel's reading Jeremiah. And as he's reading Jeremiah, he realizes Jeremiah foretold. That the captivity would only last 70 years. So Daniel stumbles onto that and he begins to do the math in his mind and he realizes wait a minute, we're gonna be here for 70, we've been here for 68, something's about to happen. We're living in significant times. That's what Daniel realized. And so he began to pray. He took what he was reading and realizing to the Lord, and he began to just ask and say, God, what is it that you would have me to do? Look at the situation that we're in. We've been in captivity because of our sins, because of our rebellion against you, and now we're in a point where you're about to restore us. Lord, help us to know how. what do we do? And so he prays. And that's the context of everything that leads up to verse 20. Daniel's prayer, because he realized what was going on, and then we pick it up in verse 20, and we see what happens as a result of this. So Daniel 9, verse 20, it says, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin, and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of my God, which speaks of Jerusalem, where Daniel is not. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, The man Gabriel, Gabriel we know is an angel, a messenger angel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and he talked with me and he said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. So Daniel prays. God dispatches Gabriel, the angel, to go and explain to Daniel what's going to take place. And thus, now Gabriel gives to Daniel, and Daniel to us, the vision, which is, of course, the backbone. Now, look at what he says. And I'm gonna. what I'm going to do uh, here is I'm going to I'll read verse 24 and then we'll go back and pick it apart and then we'll move through the passage and and unlock it. He says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Now I don't know about you, But if I was Daniel, I would say, what? (laughs) Oh, (laughs) what in the world is this? Well, he actually gives to him a lot here only in one verse. He gives to him, first of all, a a, a time frame, a how long. And then he gives him a who this time frame deals with. And then he gives him a what of what's going to happen within this time frame. First off, he gives them the time frame. He says, 70 weeks. Now that right there is enough to throw us into a tailspin of confusion, trying to figure out exactly what that means. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people. The word that's translated weeks there in your English Bible, in the Hebrew language, the word is shabuah, which does not mean a week in the context that we use the word week in the English language. The word shabuah means a seven, a period of seven, but it doesn't specifically highlight or tell us exactly what that seven is, whether it's seven days or seven minutes or seven hours or seven weeks or seven months or seven years. We don't know what that seven is. The word Shabuah in the Bible is used uh, in Genesis 29 to speak of a period of seven years when Jacob uh, served seven years for Rachel. Laban said, fulfill her seven, her shibua. When In Ezekiel chapter 45, it's used to speak of a period of seven days. You know. Uh, and in, in other places, in Deuteronomy, when it talks about the Feast of Weeks, it's used to talk about a, a period of seven weeks. You know. So, so the time that it's associated with is unclear. He just says, seventy sevens are determined upon thy people. Now, because we know how this has played out, and, and, I'll, and, and I'll plus I'll give you something at the end of this study this morning that for me is really a nail in the coffin. We understand this to be a period of seven years. In other words, the Shabuah, the seven, seventy sevens, speaks of a period of seven years. In other words, what he's saying is that seventy periods of seven years are determined upon thy people. So if you multiply 70 times seven years, you come up with 490. Uh, Simple football math. We're men. We all know sevens, right? Seven, 14, 21, 28, 35, 42, 49, 49, 7 times seven is 49. Add the zero back on. 490 years is the time span that God is dealing with here. We'll come back to that. Uh, later at the end and, and if, if any of you have the check engine light about well do we know for sure that that's well there's two reasons we know it one is because when you see what how things played out it becomes crystal clear uh, the other ones in Daniel 12 we'll, we'll get to it later so the time frame is 490 years then he says who who is this time frame concerning the answer again right there in verse 24 he says for your people and for your holy city Who are Daniel's people? Israel. That's right. And who is, and of course, where is the holy city? Jerusalem. Right, so we know who this time frame is dealing with. It's dealing with Israel. Of course, that's why we're talking about the time span of Israel here this morning. And then number three, he gives the to-do list. What are the things that are going to be accomplished within this time frame? And then he lists six things. Here they are again. To finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Six things there, three of which were accomplished in the first coming of Jesus Christ. To make an end, or to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity. Those three things were accomplished through the first coming of Christ and his redeeming work upon the cross. The last three will will be accomplished at his second coming. He says to bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy. That means that it's all been fulfilled. Everything is sealed up and completed. And then to anoint the most holy, which speaks of the coronation uh, you, you know, of his rule and reign that will be eternal, you know. And, and those things are yet to be. Th- those, so the first three deal with the first coming. The last three deal with the second coming. And so here's what we've been given so far. We have the clock. And I want you in your mind to picture that. I want you to picture a clock, not a clock, you know, uh, of hours and minutes, but more or less a stopwatch or a countdown clock, And on that clock is 490 years. The name on the clock is Israel, highlighting who that time frame deals with. And then somewhere on it is the to-do list of all that will be accomplished in that time span. That's what we've been given. The clock, who it deals with, and what will be done within that time frame. Now, the question is, if I was Daniel, when does that time span begin? Does it begin right now when you're telling me this? Or does it begin at some point that's yet to be in the future? Or has it already begun? That would be my next question. Well, that's the question that Gabriel answers next. When does this countdown of 490 years begin? By the way, this is one of the most incredible prophecies in the whole Bible. If, I, if you haven't realized uh, that subconsciously as we're going through this, God, for God to be able to prophesy, not broadly, or abstract, but to give an exact detail of days and times is amazing. Only God can do that. And this is an incredible, this is one of the most incredible prophecies in the Bible because of that, for that very reason. Only God can give details. When does the clock begin? Verse 25. He says, Know therefore and understand. That from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or seven plus 62. Now, I'm a little angry at Gabriel for doing that. Why couldn't he just say 69? (laughs) instead of saying seven plus 62, because that just makes it a little more confusing than it has to be, but he does it for a reason. But he says, until it shall be 69 of those weeks, the street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. So here's what he says to, to Daniel. He says, Daniel, this is when the clock will begin. He says, the clock will begin when the command goes forth to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. Why is Daniel praying? Remember? Hey, we've been here 68 years. In two years, we're going to go back. Lord, what's the deal? What's going to happen? How is this all going to go down? When the command goes forth, Daniel, when you find out that that command has been issued, that's when the clock begins. In 490 years, begins its span. And then he gives them details. He says this. After 69 of those sevens, Let me do math for you real quick. 69 times 7 is 483 years. 483 years after that clock begins, the Messiah is going to come. Now that's bold because he's predicting to the very day when the Messiah is going to come. That's amazing. Because for you and I, that means, whoa, we have something that we can look at and see. Well, did it happen? I mean, we're looking back at this whole thing. Now, real quick, parenthetically, why does he divide this? Why does he say seven weeks and then 62 weeks? Why doesn't he just say 69? Very practical, because it took the first seven, the first 49 years to to, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's how long it took. And that's why he says at the end of verse 25, the street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And so it took the first 49 years to rebuild and then after that would come the other 62 sevens. So a total span of 483 years will pass from that command until Messiah the Prince. Well, the next question we ask is when was that command given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem? The scripture is Nehemiah chapter 2. You don't have to turn there, but you can write it down, read it later. It was in the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes. In the month of Nisan, which is March by our calendar, Nehemiah goes in to be the cupbearer, the butler, as was his position in the kingdom, to Artaxerxes, and he was sad. And Xerxes says, Why are you sad? What's the matter? And Nehemiah says, how can I not be sad when the city of my father's tombs lies in ruins? And he says, if you're willing, send me back. Give me permission and provision to go back and rebuild the city of my father's tombs. And Artaxerxes does it. He gives the command, he writes a letter, he gives him the supplies and the authority to go back and do it. The date historically is March 14th, 445 B.C. March 14th, 445 B.C., Artaxerxes gives the command to go forth. The clock begins. If you take 483 years and you multiply it times 360, which is the lunar year, which is what the Bible operates on, 483 times 360, you come to 173,880 days and so you make a Christmas ring chain like you did when you were kids, remember? Counting down the days till Christmas. 408, I'm sorry, 173,880 links long is that chain. And every day you peel one off and you count down from March 14th, 445 BC. Where does that bring you? It brings you to April 6th, 32 AD. What happened on April 6th, 32 AD? keeping a finger in Daniel chapter 9, because we're coming back, go to Luke chapter 19. In Luke 19, we have the record of what happened on April 6, 32 AD. If you look at verse 35... And I'm skipping um, a little just for time's sake, but basically Jesus has told them to prepare the Passover and then he sent his disciples to go uh, steal a donkey, essentially. But then it would only be borrowing because when they were confronted, they would say the Lord needs him and the people would say, okay, take it. That's what happens. We pick up the context or or the narrative in verse 35. It says, then they brought him, that is the donkey, to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, "'Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest.'" And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Three things happen here within this passage. First of all, we have a messianic proclamation. It says that the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that's a messianic proclamation. It's a quote right out of the Psalms that was foretelling the coming of the Messiah. In other words, they are declaring him to be the Messiah. And that's the reason why the Pharisees got so upset and said, rebuke your disciples, because they understood what was being said and they rejected the claim that Jesus was the Messiah. So a messianic proclamation. Now, this is strange to me and here's why. Because Jesus' ministry has now been in full swing for three and a half years. And every single time, someone wanted to publicly proclaim him as the Messiah, Jesus said, shh, not yet. Don't say that. Whether it was the demons who would say, we know who you are, or whether it was people who were healed, or whether it was disciples who heard his teaching, he would not allow anyone to publicly proclaim him as the Messiah, adamantly for three and a half years. Now, not only is he allowing it, But he's saying that if these should hold their peace, even the rocks would say it. Why? The answer is because he's on a schedule. The answer is because it was foretold by Daniel to the very day that he would be presented as the Messiah. And that day had not yet come until now. And now that day came. And here's the point of the rocks phrase. Why the rocks would cry out. Here's why. Because the word of God is going to be fulfilled. And if it's not fulfilled by men, it will be fulfilled by rocks because nothing is going to stop the word of God from being fulfilled and coming to pass exactly how God said it's going to come to pass. And so there's a messianic proclamation. Mm -hmm. It's followed by the peculiar proposition of the rocks would cry out. And then, and this is the important part, it's followed by, listen, a punitive but purposeful pause. You might want to write that down. A punitive but purposeful pause. Notice what Jesus says to them because they weren't ready. He says, if you had known, in verse 42, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now instead they are hidden from your eyes. In other words, something happens here. There's an interruption in the plan. It was supposed to go a certain way, but it didn't go that way. It seems like it's an accident, but it's not. God knew it wouldn't go. God knew exactly what would happen. We find that when we go back to Daniel. But there's something that interrupts here. 483 years into this 490 span. He says, if you had known, but you didn't, you weren't ready. And so now they're hidden from your eyes. And then he speaks of something yet future. For the days will come upon you. And then he speaks of their destruction. And then he says, and the reason for all of this, look at the end of verse 44. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, he expected them to know. Because he gave them to the very day when it would be. He expected them to know. And they weren't ready. They didn't know. They didn't know. And so he says these things are hidden from your." So what's happening here? Here's what's happening. For you and me now back here studying this prophetic scheme. Here's what happened. On that day, Palm Sunday, 32 AD. He said these things are hidden from your eyes. And the divine clock was put on pause. You ever watch 60 Minutes? I always have that picture of that clock in my mind that, you know, when the, that, 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 it's paused. 483 years have passed and the clock is paused. Why? Why does God pause the clock? Well, he tells us it's because they weren't ready, but what does God have in mind? What's he doing? Turn the page. Just go to Luke 21 for just a second. One verse. Luke 21, Jesus is foretelling the destruction that he spoke of back that we just read in greater detail here. And notice what he says in verse 24. He says, and they, speaking of the the Jewish people, the Israelites, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until... The times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Do you see that? The times of the Gentiles. What do you think he might be speaking of? What's the times of the Gentiles? Say it. The church. That's right. The church age. In other words, there's another time span that God has planned to interject here. The church age. Look at Romans chapter 11. You can leave Luke now. We won't be back in Luke so you can go to Romans chapter 11. Again, just one verse. The Apostle Paul, in this section of Romans, is discussing God's future plans for Israel. And I said future. Hear that word. It's important. And here's what he says in verse 25. Romans eleven twenty-five. 25. He says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. And here's what that mystery is that we're not to be ignorant of that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That blindness has happened to Israel in part. Meaning there still are some Jews that will get it, that will see it. Paul was one of them. But he says it's going they're going to be blind until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. What's the fullness of the Gentiles? Again, it's the church. The church is made up of neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, slave or free, but all, the whosoevers. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, Israel, 490 years for their completion, was put on pause 483 years into the cycle. And since that pause has taken place, we have been in this time of the church age where the grace of God is being made known to all men, where whosoever will can come to him. But you say, wait a minute. 490 years isn't over yet. Turn back to Daniel chapter nine. We wrap this up and bring it close to a close verse 26 and after the 62 weeks so 7 plus the 7 and then after the 62 that follow that so 69 essentially in total after that Messiah shall be cut off very detailed isn't it don't you love that just like Jesus was he was cut off But not for himself. Jesus didn't die for himself. Who did he die for? The sins of the whole world. And then he goes on. He leaves that off there, changes subjects, and he says, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Now, look at that section again right there when he says, and the people of the prince who is to come. The prince who is to come is a reference to the Antichrist. And we know that because he's talking about the people of that prince that will destroy Jerusalem. Who destroyed Jerusalem? It was the Romans. The Romans came in 70 AD And they ransacked Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They slaughtered a million Jews. They were dispersed, just like it says what happened here. It was the Romans. The Antichrist will arise out of a revived version of the Roman Empire, according to the scriptures. Other places in Daniel, Revelation, you know. And so the prince who shall come is a reference to the Antichrist. And that's who he then talks about in verse 27. Look at verse 27. It says, then he. The he there is Connected to the prince that shall come back in the previous verse. And he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now pause for a second. If 483 years has passed and the clock was put on pause, how many years remain? Who wants to take a guess as to what that seven years is? That's right. The tribulation which is the third time span in our four time spans that I mentioned to you earlier. The final seven years is the tribulation period. This tells us when that time period begins. When does the tribulation officially begin according to God's clock? The answer is when he confirms a covenant with many that lasts seven years. In other words, there will be a seven-year covenant that's crafted by the Antichrist, whoever he is. And and, and the terms of that aren't specifically given here, though it's implied that it will involve the rebuilding of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Because he's going to go on to say, in fact, let's just read it. But in the middle of the week, now, exactly, three and a half years into a seven-year period, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out upon the desolate. Now, I know that's crazy language. Don't let that confuse you. This is speaking of an event called the abomination of desolations. If you've read Matthew 24, where Jesus talks about the end times, in verse 14, Jesus says, When you see the abomination of desolations spoken of by Daniel the prophet, and then he says, whoever reads, let him understand. It's even in parentheses. It's kind of interesting. Go read it. It means you gotta, you're going to have to wrap your mind around this a little bit. But that's what it's talking about here. And that's how we know that part of this deal will involve a temple. Because the abomination of desolations of involves the temple. We'll talk about that later. Way too much information to try to introduce another concept into this now. You know, but... But basically, Antichrist will be revealed by the signing of a covenant, a seven-year peace deal. And, and, and you know, other scriptures give us a little more dimension about that and the, the situation that surrounds it and, and all the rest. But that time, the clock will start again. By the way, the tribulation in the scripture is also called, other names for that period of time are Jacob's trouble. That's, the Bible calls it Jacob's trouble, the time of Jacob's trouble. And it also calls it the 70th week of Daniel. Well, the Bible doesn't call it that. I guess that's kind of Bible scholars call it that, you know. But here's the point, why I bring it up. Because the last seven years of world history is also the last seven years of the 490 that, 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 that Gabriel's telling Daniel about here. The clock will start again and God will at that point again begin to deal with Israel. He's going to open their eyes. He's going to save a remnant of them. He's going to let them go through the tribulation. You know, you know that's, I'm getting way ahead of myself here and uh, really confusing this, uh, this study, you know, and all. The tribulation will have a beginning that starts with this covenant. There will also be a midweek revealing. Notice there just at the end of verse 27 when he says, in the middle of the week, He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. The abomination of desolations that he's talking about here, Antichrist is going to be initially received by the Jews. They're going to believe that he's their Messiah. But halfway through the tribulation, three and a half years into it, he's going to do something abominable. He's going to go into the temple. He's going to put an end to the sacrifices And he's going to declare himself to be God and demand to be worshipped. At that point, the Jews are going to wake up. They're going to realize they've been hoodwinked. That this isn't actually their Messiah. They're not to worship any man. And they're going to realize that this is not right. He's, this is not according to plan and they're going to realize and then he's going to launch a persecution against them and you know we get into other things but that's what's going to happen they're going to realize who he is there and, uh, and then the last part of the verse there um, he says even until the consummation which is determined is poured out upon uh, the desolate so basically we have the covenant beginning the midweek revealing and now one more thing on that uh, you say and this is for you Vinnie How do we know that the heptad, the Shabuah, is seven years? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He doesn't need it anymore, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. How do we know? You say, just put the nail in the coffin on that for me here at the end. Turn to Daniel chapter 12. Because he says, in the midst of the week... In the middle of the seven, basically, the midst of the Shabuah, he's going to put an end to sacrifice and offering and that which makes abomin- you know, the abomination of desolation. Notice what it says in Daniel. Uh, I didn't write down the verse. I'll find it real quick. Hang on. Uh, verse 11, Daniel 12, 11. It says, and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away. Now, Daniel 9 told us that happens in the midst of the week, in the middle of the seven. From the time that the the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. If you work that out, it's three and a half years. Yeah, it's... Yeah, so do, do you get it? You see, that's, if, if half a week is 1200 it's actually 12,60 days, uh, which this says 1290. I don't know what the 30 days are. you know, there's probably an answer to that, and I just don't know it. But you know, basically, we're dealing with a three and a half year period of time, which is half a seven. So double that is seven years. So the seven is seven years. Everybody follow that? You know? All right. Let's close. <laughs> you're going to say, I need a nap. <laughs> you know, this is like, it's Saturday morning, I need to go home and sleep. Two points by way of application. Number one, you thought the whole world was all about you, didn't you? <laughs> God's had his hand on this thing from the very beginning. Think about how far into the game we are right now. I mean, imagine being Daniel and just being told, hey, 490 years, 483 from this point, Messiah is gonna come. Here he's thinking, wow, we might be in the last days, you know. And then all that time passed and everything happened exactly as God said. Then 2,000 years of church history we have behind us. <clears throat> think about how far we are into God's thing. What a privilege it is to be a part of it, regardless of the days. And I think we're in extremely significant days. What a privilege to be a part of God's plan, that he would invite us to be players in it. And in this time, it's a privilege. What an incredible thing. And number two, what can we do with this? I think we should do what Daniel did. He realized, hey, I'm just a pawn, a player. God's got this all worked out. And what he did is he went to prayer and he said, what do you want me to do, Lord? What part can I play in this?" What are you going to do for us? Lord, we've sinned against you. It says he was confessing his sin, the sin of his people, and making his supplication to the Lord. And I think that's the encouragement that we should take from this, if any, is that, hey, Lord, let me be involved. What part can I play? You'll use anyone whose life is given to you. So how can you use me in the days that we live in? So may God give us wisdom. May he use us. Amen. Amen. Any questions?